so welcome. Uh, I'm Jill Rutter, I'm Programme Director here. Absolutely delighted to be chairing, it uh, seems like, yet another IFG, IFS post-election uh, fiscal briefing. Uh, we seem to be doing these rather more regularly than we expected when we started, to, started this back in 2010. We had quite a nice gap to 2015. Obviously, uh, the number of elections we're now having means we have to do these more regularly. So those of you that are veterans of this format will know that what happens is we kick off with Carl Emerson, Deputy Director of the Institute for Fiscal Studies, uh, who will give us a sort of update on the fiscal position. We, uh, followed by our own Deputy Director, Deputy Director of the Institute for Government, Julian McRae, who will give his take on where we are now on tax and spend. And then it's all over to you for questions, comments, etc., etc., etc. So we'll make it quite rapid fire. Just a warning, um, the massed police presence you see is because this event is coinciding with the state visit of the King of Spain. They cancelled that for the election, but they haven't cancelled the state visit because we're having this event. So if you need to go exit via the Mall, we haven't yet been able to establish when it's going to become very difficult to cross the Mall. But if you're trying to do some just-in-time exiting to get somewhere very quickly across the Mall, you might be wise to leave a bit of extra time. That's not a Brexit metaphor for the problems that we'll face if we have to introduce border checks uh, <coughs> on March 2019. But anyway, but you might want to allow just a bit more time, otherwise you might not get there. We'll try and get an update from the mass police outside uh, to see whether we need to tell you uh, that it really is shut off or whatever. It also may mean that we're accompanied by martial music at some point to all the benefits of doing these sorts of things at the Institute for Government. So, without further ado, I'm going to ask Carl to kick us off. Carl Emerson. Thank you, Jill. So, I'm going to go through the latest fiscal numbers, talk about um, the Conservative Party manifesto commitments, um, and what the trade-offs are for the Chancellor as he moves towards his um, budget um, in the autumn. Now, the big picture to all of what's going on in the public finances has been the terrible economic performance that the UK has had since 2008. Um, line here shows you GDP per person age 16 and over. You can see that it's now only just above the level that we were enjoying at the start of 2008. And if I'd stood here at the start of 2008 and made a forecast, maybe a very simple one you might have done was to say, well, let's assume that GDP per capita is going to grow at about 2% per year. Um, if it had, we'd have been on that trajectory of the black line. Um, and we are today about 15% poorer on average than what we may well have expected. And also, disappointingly, the gap between the two is forecast to widen. So it's not the case that we're 15% poorer, but it's a temporary hit and we think we're going to bounce back. If anything, that gap is growing and it climbs to about 18% by the forecast horizon. So terrible economic performance, putting incredible strain on the finances of many households, also putting incredible strain um, on the finances of the government. So the government has some fiscal targets. Um, the last set we had were announced by Philip Hammond in his first fiscal statement, the autumn statement of 2016. These fiscal targets were replacing those that had only been introduced a year before. So we've been going through fiscal targets at quite a rapid rate. There were four of them. Um, the top three were all on course to be met with some wiggle room. Um, the most challenging one was the bottom one, to deliver a headline surplus as soon as possible in the next parliament. Now, presumably at the time, the Chancellor was thinking about a Parliament that would run from 2020 to 2025. Um, as we pointed out at the time, an early election would make that target much harder to meet because you'd be getting, having to get to a surplus sooner. 
The Conservative Party manifesto only mentions one fiscal target, and that is to have a balanced budget by the middle of the next decade. So it's a softening on the headline surplus as soon as possible in what would be the current parliament. And in fact, even the 2025 seems to be a bit vaguer with the looser middle of the next decade. So I'm going to go through lots of fiscal numbers. It's important to remember that when we're talking about forecasts, they're all uncertain. They will all be wrong. Um, therefore, we need to bear that in mind when we're making policy decisions, when we're looking at um, costings of policies, for example. So this shows you what the coalition government um, was forecasting for the deficit back in March 2015, the last budget before the 2015 election. At the time, George Osborne was forecast, well, the deficit had fallen sharply since 2009-10, and Mr. Osborne was forecasting a surplus in 2018-19. If we roll forward a year, so the first budget of the Conservative government, you can see that the date at which we were forecasting a budget surplus had been pushed back to 2019-20. The Conservatives, after the 2015 election, um, decided to go for spending plans that were more generous than the ones that they'd committed to in their manifesto. They also then chose to row back on the tax credit cuts that they'd announced in their first budget, but still getting to budget surplus um, by the end of the current decade. We then roll forward to Mr Hammond's first budget, the most recent budget, last March, and you can see that um, the downgrade in the economic forecasts, in part related to Brexit, but not entirely, meant that the forecast now implied the deficit persisting throughout the forecast period, so falling through to 2019-20 and then being pretty stable um, thereafter. So it was pretty clear from this that if you wanted to get to balanced budget, there'd be more work to do. And the OBR also provides a split of the estimates for the deficit into the structural deficit and the cyclical deficit. So the cyclical deficit is the bit that they think is explained by temporary weakness in the economy. We can sit back and relax about that. It should disappear as growth um, does its work. The structural deficit is more problematic. It's not explained by temporary weakness in the economy. If you want to reduce that, you're talking about having to do tax rises or spending cuts. And rather disappointingly, we're now in a position where the OBR is judging that all of the deficit is structural, not cyclical. So the deficit is, is entirely explained by um, a permanent phenomena, and therefore if you want to reduce it further, it's tax rises or spending cuts, um, or in other words, austerity that would be needed. The Chancellor, um, at least prior to the election, had this 2% of GDP limit on the structural deficit in 2020-21, and you can see here that there was quite a bit of wiggle room against that target at the time. So all of that borrowing that we've done over recent um, years, over the last decade, have added considerably to public sector net debt. Um, it was running below 40% of GDP prior to the financial crisis. It's now above 80% of GDP, forecast to rise slightly over the next year or so before falling. And you can see it's falling in 2020. So again, that chan the Chancellor's target of having debt fall in that year um, is on course to be met. In part, it's due to some accounting issues with the um, loans made out by the Bank of England. Um, in particular, as a result of the referendum, the Bank of England decided to lend some money to the financial sector on a two-year basis. When those loans are made, it adds to public sector net debt. When, touch wood, the financial sector repays those loans in two years' time, it will mean public sector net debt falling. So if you strip that effect out, you can see that the decline in debt is actually much more gradual. So the headline figures are flattered by this, and it makes the Chancellor's target easier to meet. And where does that leave us in terms of the big picture for tax and spend? Well, the, the dark green line here shows you public spending as a share of the economy. 
The lighter green, um, which is typically below it, shows you tax receipts and non-tax receipts as a share of the economy. You can see that the financial crisis led to tax receipts dipping down a little bit as a share of GDP, but a larger part of the story was public spending growing very, very sharply. That wasn't really because we were spending loads more in cash terms on public spending. It was rather it was because we kept to the cash spending limits for things like schools and hospitals. Those were set out prior to the crisis and were predicated on a certain level of economic growth. When the economy underperformed, those same spending plans turned out to be a much larger share of our smaller than expected economy. Since then, you can see that the tax burden has been edging up over time, and you can see that the government has cut public spending as a share of GDP quite considerably. The gap between the two, the deficit, um, is now back to the level it was at in 2007-8. So the austerity that we've had in since 2010 has been sufficient to get the deficit back to pre-crisis levels. And it's done it in a way which has left the tax burden a bit higher than what it was prior to the crisis and public spending a little higher than what it was prior to the crisis. So we're now in a world where we're spending a bit more and taxing a bit more as a share of our economy than we were in 2007-8 and borrowing a similar sum, albeit with a much larger amount of debt that's been accumulated. Going forwards, the plans imply the tax burden continuing to edge up and public spending continuing to be cut as a share of GDP. Um, if delivered, it means that the public spending will be brought back down to its lowest level as a share of the economy since 2003-04. So it's nothing like the situation three years ago where the forecasts were implying public spending falling to its lowest share of the economy since the 1920s. And the tax burden will rise, reaching its highest level since 1986-87. So that's if the forecasts are correct, that's how the remaining deficit reduction, at least through the rest of this parliament, um, would come from. Turning that to that in a bit more detail, why is the tax burden rising? Well, in part, in large part, it's being driven by some discretionary policy decisions, some decisions to push up taxes. In particular, dividend tax was put up by Philip Hammond and council tax is set to rise um, with those increases earmarked for additional spending on social care. It's worth noting there are also tax cuts going on, but that's the net figure, so there are big tax rises um, offset partially by tax cuts. One of those tax cuts is to corporation tax. Um, it's currently 19%. Um, by 2020, it's set to fall to 17%. If, for example, the Chancellor decided not to go ahead with that planned cut to corporation tax, he would boost forecast revenues by about £5 billion a year, at least in the near term. On the other hand, the forecasts assume that every April will increase fuel duty rates in line with the RPI. Um, it's quite traditional in the UK to think that's going to happen until you get to a budget and then you cancel this year's increase. Um, if we think that behaviour is going to continue, and I noticed that Lord Lawson was on the radio last week arguing it should not, um, but if it were to continue by 21-22, that would cost the public finances about £4 billion in that year. The Conservative Party manifesto had some, a recommitment to some further income tax cuts. Um, they continued with the pledge from their previous manifesto to have a £12,500 personal allowance, which is supported by the DUP, and a £50,000 higher rate threshold by 2020. They're not on the books. If we do decide to do both of those, it will cut taxes by about £2 billion. On the spending side, in part, the spending cuts as a share of GDP are being driven by benefit cuts working their way through the pipeline. So we have two more years of the benefits freeze, the nominal freeze to most rates of working age benefits to come, next April and the following April. And in addition, some of the benefit cuts that are already in place are having increasing impact over time. So as new, new claimants move on to universal credit, 
they'll find that on average universal credit is now less generous than the system that it replaces. As people who've got two or more children have more children, they'll find that their um, benefits will not go up as much as what they would have done um, under the pre-April 2017 um, system. And by 21-22, the combined effect of that will be to reduce public spending by about £11 billion, and actually those savings will grow over the longer term. There were some Conservative Party manifesto commitments to cut back on benefit spending for pensioners. Um, they wouldn't have saved very much in the current Parliament anyway, um, but both have been um, abandoned. And finally, on public services, if we look at total public spending outside of debt interest, outside of benefits, so what we might broadly think of as public service spending, that's actually planned to increase over the next five years by £37 billion. But of course, the economy is forecast to grow over this period, and that magnitude of real increase actually represents a cut to the share of national income being devoted to public services, a cut that's equivalent to about £17 billion. But it's worth noting that that 17 billion is not uniform. Um, so for example, it comprises a 27 billion pound cut to day-to-day -day spending on public services as a share of national income, alongside a 10 billion pound boost to investment spending as a share of national income as a result of Philip Hammond's autumn statement decision to increase investment spending plans. There were some commitments in the manifesto that the Conservatives published on schools, on the NHS and on social care. Um, but our judgment was that essentially, given the real increases that were implied by the budget forecast, that those commitments that they made in the manifesto didn't really um, require additional funding over and above what had already been set aside. It wasn't obvious to us you would have to top up the spending plans in the budget in order to keep to the commitments they made for extra spending, at least, in those areas. Now, as we, if we do want to continue deficit reduction and we do want to eliminate the deficit, it's worth noting there are some additional pressures on the public finances. Um, the most <coughs> obvious one, perhaps, for public spending is that the population is growing in size, it's also ageing, and also history suggests that healthcare costs will rise over time. And if we look over the period from 2021 to 2025, the OBR numbers suggest that this ageing of the population is putting a particular pressure on the public finances. That's a five-year period in which we're not planning to increase the state pension age. It's going to be age 66 for both men and women throughout that period. It's also a period in which the baby boomers, born in the late 40s, early 50s, will be putting increasing pressures on the NHS and social care budgets. There's also a potential pressure on receipts from immigration. Um, in the autumn statement, the OBR reduced its um, forecast for immigration into the UK relative to what it would have done absent the referendum result. And because of that, they reduced their forecast for tax receipts by about £6 billion per year. The Conservative Party manifesto contains a commitment to reduce net immigration to tens of thousands. If the OBR were to incorporate that into their forecast, it would be a similar size reduction in um, forecast immigration. Um, and you might therefore expect them to downgrade their revenue forecast by a similar magnitude. And I don't think any public finance talk at the moment would be complete without a discussion of the issues around Brexit. Um, economists are pretty much agreed that um, leaving the European Union, leaving the single market will be bad for the UK economy and bad for the public finances. What economists are not agreed on is the size of that impact. Um, there's a large range of estimates. Um, what we do know, of course, is that 
if we increase tariff and non-tariff barriers with countries with which we trade, that will reduce economic growth and therefore it will weaken the public finances. So the most public finance friendly Brexit will be the one where tariff and non-tariff -tariff barriers are not increased too much. It's worth noting that the OBR, of course, have incorporated um, the estimated, estimated impact of Brexit on the public finance into their forecasts, and their forecasts run to 21-22. And I think it's worth noting there that the hit to GDP that we're getting over that period is very heavily on the investment side. So it's a reduction in investment that we're seeing relative to the pre-referendum forecast. Now, when you reduce investment spending in the economy, of course, that will only have a mooted effect on the public finances, at least in the near term, because investment spending is not heavily taxed. In fact, if companies do less investment, they may be paying more in corporation tax. But over the longer run, if we do less investment, there'll be less corporate profits, and they would have been subject to tax. So we might think that the composition of the hit to GDP is going to be relatively tax-friendly in the short run compared to the long run. And we think that over the longer term, beyond 21-22, um, as the economy adjusts, you might expect an additional effect of Brexit of about £3.5 billion a year. Finally, the OBR forecasts do not allow for any one-off divorce settlement with the European Union. So if we do hand over a one-off cheque to Brussels, that will add to borrowing and debt. But on the other side, they haven't allocated any saving from the £8 billion per year net that we pay into the European Union budget. So at the moment, there's no accounting for the fact that we could choose to not send any money to the European Union each year on an ongoing basis. We could choose to refinance all of the spending that the European Union currently does in the UK on our behalf and have £8 billion a year left over relative to the OBR forecast. So it's not assumed that that will be saved. So what about the new government? What, what's changed since the election? Well, the obvious thing that's changed is we have the confidence and supply arrangement between the Conservatives and the DUP. That's pledged to spend an additional £450 million a year for two years um, in Northern Ireland, the possibility being raised that more will follow after that. I think it's worth saying that's a very significant sum in terms of spending in Northern Ireland. It's a tiny sum for the UK public finances. Um, but of course, if it adds to pressure to spend elsewhere in the, European, in, elsewhere in the UK, um, it would be a, a, a huge amount. So, £450 million is equivalent to 1.3% of the economy in Northern Ireland. If you wanted to boost public spending by that magnitude across the UK, you'd be talking about a two, £22 billion per year giveaway. So this chart here is showing you total public spending as a share of gross value added, a measure of the size of the economy, um, which will be in each part of the UK. You can see that um, the addition of £450 million, basically you can't see what that's adding to the UK number. It's uh, minuscule. If we bring up other parts of the United Kingdom, you can see that Northern Ireland currently, um, as a relatively poor part of the United Kingdom, um, has a very high level of public spending as a share of its economy. And actually, the £450 million addition is not an insignificant amount. It's increasing the size of that bar by a noticeable degree. Another issue that's come up over the last week or so has been on public sector pay. Um, the government currently spends about £180 billion a year, remunerating 5.1 million public sector workers, so that's the cost of pay, the cost of their public service pension contributions, the cost of the employer national insurance levied on their pay. Recent policy has been to squeeze public sector pay scales back, um, and that's been, under current policy, that will continue right through to 2019-20. 
We could choose to be more generous if we wanted, um, but of course because we spend so much on public sector pay, because it's a large part of what the public sector does, a significant increase would be expensive. So the forecast suggests that if we instead chose to index in line with private sector wage growth rather than sticking to the 1% a year average increase in pay scales, by 21-22 that would cost about £9 billion a year additional to public spending unless we decided to pay for it by additional cuts to employment or to non-pay bill spending. Now I think it's worth noting in the near term some of that additional spending would actually flow back to the Treasury, some of the increase in pension contributions, some of the boost to tax revenues that you'd get. But that would, both of those would unwind over the longer term as the economy adjusts and as your public service pension outgoings start to increase. So why might we be interested in increasing public sector pay? Um, the chart here shows you hourly wages in the public sector relative to hourly wages in the private sector. Now I don't know what the right level of this chart is. Um, we know, for example, that surgeons are going to be paid more on average than many private sector workers, not least because they have higher levels of education, but how much more, um, we don't know. But we might be interested in the trend over time. And you can see that the squeeze so far on public sector pay could well be justified by the fact that actually we're just unwinding the um, increase in public sector pay relative to private sector pay that occurred um, in the face of the recession and financial crisis. So the relativities are now back to the level they were around the time the crisis hit. If the OBR's forecast for private sector wage growth are correct and we continue increasing pay scales by 1% a year on average, we'll see that the ratio will continue to decline and reach its lowest level since the early 1990s, and there may well be concerns that this will feed into increased pressures, um, increased problems in terms of recruitment and retention of the public sector workers that we want. If instead we move to a world where we index public sector pay scales in line with private sector wages, um, the line would flatten out naturally and we would, we would only see it reverse back to the level seen in the early 2000s rather than driving it back to the level seen in the early 1990s. So if we do stick to current policy on public sector pay, there's clearly a significant risk that pressures in recruitment and retention will grow and become increasingly problematic for the government. So finally, I want to talk about an end to austerity. What might that look like? There's been a lot of talk about whether we should end austerity. Um, how much might it cost? Well, in part, it depends on what you mean by austerity. So one possibility is you're just interested in public services, and you say, well, we don't want to cut public service spending as a share of our economy anymore. Well, if you want to do that, you need to find £17 billion in 2122. Um, you could either tax that much more, or you could borrow that much more. Or you could go further, you could say, well, in addition to um, looking at public services, we're also worried about the effect of tax rises and benefit cuts on household incomes. Perhaps we want to cancel all of the tax rises that are in the pipeline, cancel all of the benefit cuts that are working their way through. Well, they would, doing that would cost you five and 11 billion pounds, respectively. So if you went for all three, the 33 billion pound giveaway, um, you'd be borrowing more than 2% of GDP in 2020-21, so that target would clearly have to go, and you'd probably have to abandon your commitment to eliminate the deficit by the middle of the next decade. So I can show you the trade-off here. Um, this budget constraint is showing you how much of a loosening you want to go for in 21-22. Do you want to go for no loosening relative to current plans, or do you want to go for something bigger? And what would that mean for the level of debt that we would have in 21-22 as a share of our economy? 
So on the left-hand side here, I've got a scenario where the Chancellor stood up in his budget, the forecasts haven't changed. He said, I want to do the additional spending in Northern Ireland. I want to do the income tax cuts that I said in my manifesto, and I'm not going to do anything else. So debt would be a little bit higher than the budget forecast because of those two policy measures. It'll be slightly just over 80% of GDP. Alternatively, the Chancellor could say, well, I want to maintain public service spending as a share of GDP, and I'm not going to do tax rises or benefit cuts to pay for it, I'm just going to borrow the money, in which case you'd be pushing debt to GDP up to about 81.5%. Or you could say, well, actually, I don't want to do the public service cuts. I also don't want to continue putting up taxes or cutting um, welfare spending. That's a full £33 billion a year giveaway, pushing public sector debt up to 83% by the end of this Parliament. So clearly, you know, Ending austerity has a big trade-off between that and the, the kind of what we get to enjoy in terms of public services, what we get to do in terms of supporting household incomes, and how much government debt we're comfortably have, comfortable with having at the end of this parliament. So to conclude, um, there's been terrible economic growth in the UK since the start of 2008. Um, that's what's been driving the challenges for household finances, for the government's finances. And despite this, the OBR is now judging that there's no spare capacity in the economy. So the deficit we have, um, if we want to reduce it, is going to need further tax rises or spending cuts to bring it down. We can't sit back and rely on the fruits of economic growth to reduce it naturally. The budget plans imply a considerable fiscal tightening over the next few years, net tax rises, cuts to benefits working their way through the pipeline, and further cuts to spending on public services as a share of national income. And even if we keep to this plan, eliminating the deficit by the mid-2020s will be far from easy. But we do have a choice. The deficit's now back to pre-crisis levels, just under 2.5% of GDP. The UK could choose to live with that level of deficit on an ongoing basis. That's an option available to us. That was not an option in 2010. We could not have sustained a deficit north of 9% of GDP every year forevermore. So we could choose to go for no more deficit reduction if we want. That would require a sizable giveaway relative to current plans, better public services, more support for household incomes, but it would mean greater government debt, and it would also mean, almost certainly, yet another relaxing of the government's fiscal targets. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much, Carl. That's extremely comprehensive, but of course, one of the things that we all know is, it's quite interesting, I think you said, Carl, when the government chose to reverse its position on tax credits, I'm not sure it felt quite <laughs> like a choice to George Osborne, at the time, and obviously one of the things that complicates things now is the political situation, minority government, what is their majority for? So coming on to the politics of tax spend, Julian McCray. And uh, we are going to make the slides available on our website at the end, and if you are tweeting, uh, it's hashtag IFGIFS. IFGIFS. Right. Yeah, IFG, right. Get them in good. the right order. Good. Very good. Uh, good morning. Um, and thanks, Carl, for that, uh, that presentation on the numbers. Um, I just wanted to talk a bit about the politics, the planning and performance of government uh, in light of the, uh, the situation we find ourselves in. Um, and um, just start with a quick overview of what I'm actually going to say. First thing, in the context, the uh, UK is still in the middle of sorting out its public finance problems. Now, for those of you who've been to these events before, uh, that should not come as much of a surprise. Uh, the history of 
fiscal consolidations where countries find themselves in the type of hole the UK found itself in in the uh, in late 2000s suggests that it takes three or four attempts on average to actually sort out your public finance problems, usually in, extent, in excess of a decade or more uh, working on this. Uh, we seem to be following that pattern and indeed on Carl's last point, quite often deficit problems, we are borrowing too much, morph over that time period into debt problems which eventually you have to sort out. Um, I'll leave you to judge whether you think Carl's uh, figures suggest what route the UK is on, uh, but I think there are, there are big issues here and we shouldn't expect things to be sorted anytime soon. Um, in that light, I just want to take a stock take on three points. Um, first is the politics um, of this. Um, it's probably the most urgent thing out there, uh, as in we don't actually ha seem to have a strategy at the moment, political strategy for dealing with the fiscal situation. Uh, government needs to decide, or the cabinet needs to decide. And sometimes you would have said the prime minister or chancellor, but I think in this case it certainly is the cabinet, um, on what it's going to do. And in particular, does it want to revive George Osborne's austerity politics? I'll come to that uh, as we go through. Um, the second is planning. We now have actually quite outdated public spending plans uh, for a variety of reasons. Uh, and we think the Chancellor really needs to undertake a transparent uh, budget and spending review in the autumn. Um, and then finally, on performance, um, plans don't really matter much unless you can actually implement them. Uh, and the government really needs to find, as a whole, uh, a new approach uh, to how it's going to approach efficiency for the public sector. Okay, so let's start with the first of those, uh, politics and deciding on strategy. Um, the first thing to say is austerity politics. This is what George Osborne created back in 2010 and actually based on quite a large study of what other countries had done in similar situations. That's really faded over the last few years. So let's, what do I mean by that? Well, the first element of that is necessity. That sort of sense that actually there is a... There are a set of unpopular, unpalatable choices and decisions that have to be taken that will affect people, but it is necessary for the public interest. Um, actually, George Osborne uh, was relatively good at this. This is a polling question that's been asked since, uh, since the fiscal uh, crisis started, or since 2010. Thinking about the way the government is cutting spending to reduce the government's deficit, do you think it is necessary or unnecessary? Um, and the polling showed that throughout that period during um, the coalition government, uh, you could find about two people would say, yes, they thought it was necessary for every one person who thought it was unnecessary. Uh, a key element of this, and if you think about the politics at the time, you had things like the UK was on the brink of bankruptcy from George Osborne, we needed to sort this out. And then the 2015 election was all about, we must get to a surplus. It is imperative we do that as soon as possible. Um, that really started to change on the polling um, after the 2015 election. You start to see quite a narrowing of that gap between the people who think it's necessary and think it's unnecessary uh, to continue to cut uh, spending. This is a period when the government is actually, as Carl was showing, pushing back slightly the point at which it's going to get to its surplus, losing some votes, losing the politics in the House of Commons. Interestingly, Theresa May managed to reopen some of that gap after she took over. Uh, in the run-up to the election, there's actually quite a healthy difference between the necessary and necessary. The, the slight gap, I haven't shown it, the don't knows have increased quite a bit in this period. Um, the election campaign itself, though, uh, really didn't help. 
um, that gap has shrunk back down quite dramatically. And if you think about it, the election campaign, as Carl was explaining, actually loosened some of the fiscal targets. The sorting out a surplus had disappeared to some point in the middle of the next decade. That sense of urgency, there's an immediate crisis that needs to be dealt with, was very much not at the forefront of what the election campaign was about. Um, second element of this, uh, to coin a phrase, or coin, to repeat a coined phrase, we're all in it together. Again, quite a common factor if you look at other fiscal consolidations around the world. Um, this is an area where really um, the politics relies on a sense that all groups of society are contributing to the necessary actions that have to be taken. Uh, again, we can look at some of the polling on this, thinking about the way government is cutting spending, da -de -da -de -da. is this being done fairly or unfairly? And it's pretty clear that actually this was something the Conservatives never, or the coalition into the Conservative government, never really succeeded in winning on. Um, it got pretty bad at one point. That, for people who know, around 2012 is the omni-shambles budget, uh, which manages to open the gap with more people thinking it's unfair, far more people think it's unfair than fairly. But actually, slowly but surely, over the course of the 2010 to 2015 Parliament, uh, that gap was reduced. Um, so you end up actually going into the election, still more people think it's unfair than fair, the government's approach. But it's narrower than it's being pretty much for any point during that parliament. Again, what happens afterwards? We see under George Osborne a real opening up of that gap again. More people thinking it's unfair rather than fair. Um, Theresa May took a very different approach, quite a different approach on this, and actually had some success in narrowing that gap in the run-up to the general election. Uh, but once again... The election and aftermath, not a particular political success. And again, some of the policies here um, are really quite interesting. If you think about the cut side of the, what Carl was talking about, you had quite a lot of those going on very particular groups, public sector pay, it's benefit cuts. Um, on the other side, you've got actually tax reductions inside quite a few of those plans. There's nothing in that policy mix that looks like the cuts to child benefit, if people remember those, only for higher-earning groups that George Osborne had introduced, or the really big cuts to pension tax relief uh, that actually affected the top 10% by income of the population and meant that they actually paid quite a lot more um, in cash terms, and I think actually in percentage terms, than most other groups over the earlier period. So the policies were much more low tax, low spend in their nature, rather than austerity-driven necessity for the whole population. Um, so if that's austerity politics, it's faded really over the last few years. Um, the election campaign, in particular, its aftermath, show, sowing real confusion. Let me just take you through a few headlines from the last few weeks. Um, I think a masterclass in political non-communication, maybe. So let's start with this. Public sector pay cap under review, number 10 suggests. That was a few weeks ago. That was followed up with Michael Gove uh, supports lifting of public sector pay cap for NHS workers. Uh, we then got Philip Hammond, UK must hold nerve over public sector pay. Of course, no debate would be complete without Boris Johnson wading in to call for an end to the public sector pay cap. There is one point of consistency in this debate. Everyone seems to agree that Boris Johnson just doesn't get it right. <laughs> Boris Johnson slapped down for exploiting public sector pay. Um, and actually, that um, thing seems to include Boris Johnson himself, who says Boris Johnson warns against crazy Corbynite splurge over public sector pay as the latest headlines. So I think, looking back at this, I was trying to see if I could remember a point 
in nearly 25 years of looking at fiscal policy in the UK, about working inside government and outside, where a government was so broken in its ability to communicate what its actual strategy was. I can't actually think of one. Um, I hope someone can suggest one or two to me, uh, but I'd be really, really interested. I think they really have got themselves in a very difficult situation. Um, so what are the options? Um, cabinet has a set of choices. Um, pursue low tax, low spend. As I say, I think that's essentially what the election campaign was, and certainly with Labour positioning itself as high tax, high spend, um, it creates an interesting political um, dynamic in the UK. Um, the Conservatives won more votes and more seats. Uh, it's a possibility. Uh, they may wish to return to austerity politics. And the questions there go back to, well, what's the driving necessity? That means action has to be taken now. And what's your sense of we're all in it together? How do you make that politics work? Um, they could reposition to a softer post-austerity politics. And I think, as Carl has suggested, there is room to do that. But if you don't think you can raise taxes significantly to pay for it, maybe that's pushing you towards increasing debt and maybe pushing a little further down the road and reinforcing that pattern that we see in other fiscal consolidations uh, of moving from a deficit problem to a debt problem. Okay, so that's the politics. Okay, planning, uh, revising budgets. Right, first off, the spending plans we now have come out of the 2015 spending review, which I think I, I would describe as a doubling down spending review. What do I mean by that? Um, well, if we look at what actually happened to some budgets, so this is a chart just showing for each department, international aid, health and education, uh, just up there at the moment, what happened between 2010 and 2019-20, what's projected to happen to 2019-20, those are the dotted lines. And you can see that in the areas that actually did relatively well in the 2010 spending review, the 2015 spending review has essentially given them a bit more bit more money. Now, we, talk, we can talk a lot of detail about each of those lines. There's problems within them. Um, and we come back to that if people want to in the Q&A. But really, what I wanted to contrast that with is what's happening to the rest of spending throughout government. Um, so people who did badly in 2010, really, again, they're often doing badly this time round. I might pull out justice there, which, of course, has our prisons inside it. DEFRA, key Brexit department, uh, communities and local government where social care is, you've got to be slightly careful about interpreting that really is an 80% before because there's a lot happening inside local government finance. Um, but it is certainly true in the scale and magnitude that these are very big cuts to local government across the time period. So we have a set of plans which were essentially a doubling down on 2010. Um, we need to really look at these again. So what, why do I say that? Well, first, there's this issue of the political strategy, which I've already alluded to. I think whichever strategy you end up with, you probably need to revisit some of those plans and reflect them for the politics that you're pursuing. Um, but the second issue is something that we've highlighted in our performance tracker uh, publication. We've gone into quite a lot of detail in something we produced in partnership with SIPFA uh, that looks at what's happening in public services. And it highlights a set of pressures. I'll just very quickly run to two or three of them here, but people should look at the publication if you want more nuance and context on that. Um, A&E waiting times, a classic talked about a lot. Uh, we can see this is the government's national target that 95% of people should be seen within four hours. Um, and you can see that up to about 2013-ish that we're holding up meeting that target. Since then, a real decline in performance uh, on that target. And actually, some of the ways we're now trying to sort this out are putting pressure on other waiting times, like waiting times for elective surgery in hospitals as we try and work hospitals to clear out A&E. Um, 
Social care, backlogs in social care. This is about people who are waiting for social care packages and assessments. Um, two different measures up there. You'll see again, though, the pattern is till 2013, 2014, we're holding that down, and then it starts to rise exponentially. A lot of effort underway at the moment to turn this round, but still very real problems there. Um, take the third one, uh, violence in prisons. Again, you see the same pattern. The red line is assaults on staff, prison officers. Uh, the blue line is assaults of prisoners on prisoners. You can see that again up to around 2013, maybe into 2014, things are holding relatively steady, but start to increase really exponentially after that. Um, so all three areas just highlighting some of the pressures that are growing inside public services. Um, the third one, uh, we touched on it, you can't do a presentation without Brexit. I tried, but my colleagues insisted I put it in. Um, we have an issue now that we're heading into the implementation phase of Brexit before we will have finished the negotiation phase of Brexit. That's inevitable in this. There are issues like customs, immigration, uh, farming support payment systems, where we need to start implementing those and leave ourselves room to figure out exactly how that dovetails with the implementation. Um, what we really need now is clear implementation budgets from the Treasury. Uh, for anyone who's worked in Whitehall will know that there is a risk that the inherent uncertainty of Brexit will be added to by a created uncertainty with Treasury negotiating overly hard about relatively small budget packages. Actually, what we should be doing is setting out clearly how are we going to finance the start of implementing our new post-Brexit regimes. And we really need to see that clear and precise four departments to work within those budgets in the autumn. Um, so, for all those reasons, I think the Chancellor probably needs a mini spending review. We're not saying review everything is a huge thing. There are sets of very specific pressures, very specific political issues, very specific implementation issues around Brexit that need to be clarified. Um, we think it should be around the same time as the autumn budget. It makes sense to align um, the tax and spending measures around that rather than do it as a separate event. Um, and final thing I'd say on this, briefly, we've covered this in much more detail elsewhere, government really needs to introduce some transparency to help itself prevent the over-optimism that often seeps into spending reviews. What do I mean by that? Um, well, let's take one example, I could take many, spending review 2010 commitment on social care. Um, this is a direct quote. Uh, spending review makes uh, available sufficient resources for local authorities so they do not need to reduce access to services and will enable them to deliver the necessary efficiency savings. Uh, what actually happened? Well, that's the decline in community-based social care. So that's things like uh, Meals on Wheels and some of the home-based uh, attendance stuff. Um, about 25% down. Actually, if you look at the more expensive areas like residential care, around 5% down, nursing care around 6% down, at a time when there's an expanding uh, older population. Um, my point here is that I am sure the statements in the spending review will actually have been based on some analysis and some insight as to what should actually happen. Uh, those weren't published, they weren't transparent. So we have no real way of going back and trying to figure out, well, what actually occurred? How could we do better next time? Um, how do we actually make sure that we get efficiency balancing up against service provision? Social care is just one example. If you were thinking about health care, if you were thinking about prisons, loads of these areas, we need to actually be having serious debates uh, about what can drive and transform them, not just assertions which then prove not to be true. It just undermines how our politics work. So a transparent spending review where the assumptions are clear so they can be discussed and debated would help our politics greatly. Okay. 
Third issue, uh, performance, uh, new approach to efficiency. So this relates to a lot of the things I've already been saying. Um, first off, approaches to efficiency we've been using to date really have run out of road. You saw in the earlier graphs that actually up to about 2013, 14, in a lot of services, we were taking quite a lot of money out of them, but the metrics, the quality metrics, and some of the most of the coverage metrics were staying, uh, were staying up. Social care is the, a bit of the exception on that. Um, sp so spending review 2010 broadly increased efficiency, broadly by holding down public sector pay, reducing the size of workforces, very what you might call belt tightening approaches. Um, the government is really struggling to implement um, spending review 2015. Um, a lot of those mechanisms for reducing efficiency really, as it were, run out of road. Uh, we need to think much more profoundly about the type of transformative changes that can unlock, unlock spending. Um, and, you know, efficiency is this really, really dry word um, that quite often uh, sounds like a technocrat has got rather overexcited. Um, we had the Chief Secretary here uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, and actually Liz Truss's version uh, of this I thought was actually exactly right. How do we make sure for every pound we're spending that we're improving people's lives as much as we possibly can? Uh, and that's got to be the question that really animates and drives uh, government's approach to this over the next few years. Um, if we want to do that, then we really need to differentiate between the headlines that the politics produces and what the data tells us about where the issues are and what we should be spending. Carl's already touched on public sector pay uh, and some of the aggregate issues. I just want to take this down a little bit and talk about, you know, well, what would you say if you were using the data rather than the headlines to identify issues? So look, this is the number of doctors and nurses working in trusts and clinical commissioning groups. It's been rising uh, over this period. Uh, doctors are the red line, nurses are the blue line. It continues to, despite actually some of the press coverage about slightly different measures that over the last few weeks. Um, if you were actually looking at the data about you know, where specifically are the issues, you'd probably be focusing away from nurses' pay into something like GP numbers, where we're seeing the retention uh, issues really starting to bite, dropping numbers of GPs in the last set of data. Um, so, yes, not to say that we shouldn't give nurses pay rises, but, you know, on what basis are we doing this? Is it really about retention uh, and recruitment issues? And where, if we have money, would we actually spend it if that was what was motivating us? Um, similarly, you often get deeper problems in lower-profile areas. There's been a lot of coverage about schools and the pressure school faces. Um, basically, schools have faced far less pressure than other services uh, in the public sector, far less pressure than they have. That's not to say there aren't issues in schooling, and if you really wanted to look for it, you'd probably be looking at something like teacher recruitment, and you see really particular problems around computer sciences and actually design and technology uh, teaching, um, but things like physics and maths as well. You might be concerned about our STEM sort of subjects. Um, but you have to look for that uh, compared to some of the crises in areas like prisons, much less high-profile public service, it really did reach breaking point, and it still has really critical staffing issues inside it. Um, one recent report from the Select Committee was pointing out that, you know, having recruited 2,250 extra staff, the retention of those staff and other staff leaving meant that the prison service only on average, uh, in, in total, gained 440 new staff in post from that. So real recruitment retention issues inside a service that is already under extreme service pressure. Um, so, again, don't necessarily follow the headlines, follow the data as to where you think the pressure in public services are. 
And final thing, I won't say too much about this because you'll find it in lots of IFG publications, but what would a new approach um, to enabling transformatory change look like? Um, well, first, it's really got to engage the public. Jill touched on it. We have a tiny, well, no majority, depends how you count the DUP, um, in Parliament. Um, if you don't have the uh, changes that have some sense of public support for them, um, you won't really get far. So if you're thinking about changes to the healthcare system, you're really going to have to work hard at convincing people this is about improving the healthcare for local areas. That's not impossible, has been done, um, but not about just cutting back the provision you've got. We have to think far more about how you motivate public service workforces. Again, there are examples in schooling and education where actually using data to motivate professional workforces to sort out problems for themselves has been the approach that has worked and worked much more effectively for this type of change than just cascading tight budgets down. Uh, and thirdly, Whitehall itself needs to think about how it works in different ways. How exactly does it do uh, its own policy making, its own oversight of public services if it's got to move from cascading type budgets to actually enabling uh, transformatory change. Um, there's a review, efficiency review going on at the moment, uh, which Michael Barber is involved with, which may well provide some of the answers on that. Um, so finally, just to return to my summary slide, my summary slide is identical uh, to my overview slide, you'll be glad to hear. Um, the one thing I would say Look, we're still in the middle of sorting out problems in the government finances. The most important thing is that this government, this cabinet, decides what strategy it is actually going to pursue. And then we can take the planning and performance issues from there once we're clear on that. Thank you very much. Okay. Thank you very much, Julian. And just to sort of comment that all those slides are come from, uh, from a publication called Performance Tracker. And good news for the Treasury is that, uh, that the excellent Performance Tracker team will be producing an update to the Performance Tracker they released in February in the run-up to the autumn budget, and hopefully that's going to become as much of a preview event as the IFS's own green budgets and things like that. So everybody can look out to see how public services are really doing in the run-up to major fiscal events. Hopefully only one a year, she says. Uh, it's another of our recommendations. So we're going to go instantly to questions. There should be roving mics. So Penny, right next to you. Right next and if you could say who you are, yeah. Uh, George Crozier from the Chartered Institute of Taxation. Um, two quick questions, if I may. The first is, uh, I wondered if, uh, what you thought the impact of the single fiscal event will be. Um, will it mean that there's less pressure, for example, for governments to react to twice a year to bad figures or good figures? Less need to find money down the sofa. Um, the other is really about where next on tax. Um, although there isn't the sort of triple tax lock, um, the government have ruled out um, VAT increases. Um, they've ruled out increasing Class 4 NICs, the budget change they later you turned on. Uh, but there's very little scope for them to increase income tax. And some of the other taxes they've gone to, like insurance premium tax, it looks a bit like they've come to the end of the road in terms of increases to that. If the government need to find some more money down the back of the tax sofa, I wonder where you think they'll go to. Okay. So, Carl, would you like to start rummaging around the back of the tax sofa? Okay. Um, but if the government really wants to increase taxes, there's plenty of scope for it to do so, even with its um, commitments. Um, so there's not actually an economic constraint there. Um, they can raise national insurance rates if they wish to, for example. Um, and indeed, that's how the Conservative government in the early 90s, it's how the Labour government often chose to increase taxes in the past. Um, more specifically on sort of less visible taxes, it's always hard to predict what will become the next sort of stealth tax of choice. I wouldn't have sat here in 2015 and said, oh yeah, insurance premium tax, that's the one. Um, 
partly because actually it's been pushed up far higher than you can justify economically. Um, but I have no doubt that they could find another tax rise that perhaps wouldn't be the most sensible thing to do. I mean, essentially increasing, there's not that much wrong with just increasing VAT or income tax or national insurance rates. They all have relative pros and cons in terms of who they hit and what they do for certain incentives. Um, but a broad-based tax rise isn't a crazy strategy. Um, if you start looking for ruling them out for presentational reasons, you're liable to do less good tax rises. Um, the quality of your tax rises matters as much as your quantity. I guess one obvious one I put in my presentation was just noting that on the books it's a 2% cut in the main rate of, in the rate of corporation tax from 19 to 17. Just cancel that. Um, promising not to do a tax cut would get you in the near term at least £5 billion a year, which is a sizable tax rise. So given, that, Carl, just on that one, given where the government is with the majority, it's clearly easier not to do things than to do things. So is the 2% corporation tax cut already legislated? Would the government have to sort of reverse it, or is it just not bringing a change forward? Because clearly that matters enormously with the parliamentary arithmetic, which way you do it. Right. My guess is it's not legislated. It, it is, is legislated. Because okay. I think that's really interesting, is what, okay. you know, what can you not do that you were going okay. to do that actually requires no action? Do the presentation, it may still feel different. It may is feel it really a tax rise not doing a tax cut that you've yeah. already legislated? Yeah, um, no, but I think you know, once you've got it on the statute book, you actually have to formally take it off the statute book, yeah. which is harder than just you know, forgetting to do it, postponing it or whatever. Julian, do you want to comment on this, and um, particularly on uh, maybe George's point about you know, do we think the Chancellor will stick to a single fiscal event? Uh, what are the pros and cons of, uh, of that and where the pressure well, be? Look, I mean, I very much hope that a Chancellor will stick to a single fiscal event and we can have 12 months after doing the urgent stuff we need mm. to do in the autumn. Um, I mean, I think anyone who watches the speed at which we create tax and indeed mm. increasingly spending measures inside budgets and autumn statements, you know, it is not possible to think all these things through properly. And actually, it's an even bigger issue than that. You have to get the politics of this stuff right. And if we think about probably what was actually quite a rushed move to try and introduce the national insurance changes in response to a need for a fiscal announcement uh, a few months ago, actually there was quite a lot of thought going into how do you create the politics that's necessary to say, well, for self-employed workers, we may be increasing your rights at the same time. So this is part of an equalization that helps everybody, which would have been at least politics you could make an argument around. Um, I also think that there's something deeper here. I mean, there's, for those who are interested, there is, of course, a publication by the IFS, the IFG, and the Chartered Institute of Taxation, which talks about how to improve budget policy making. Um, when we wrote that, we were talking about the need for strategy and engagement and bringing people with you. We hadn't envisaged a minority government situation at that point. Um, but if you look at some of the tactics that other countries have used when they've needed to build political consensus, the Canadians in the 1990s, when we were doing part of their fiscal consolidation, set up a cabinet subcommittee specifically charged with how do you make the budget balance uh, for us and what are the important things for Canadians that we need to prioritise. And they stacked it actually not with the supporters of the Prime Minister but with the recalcitrant members who were likely to cause a fuss and forcing them to come to an agreement actually massively helped the politics within the party. So I think there are things like that which UK has no, hasn't really used because we've long been in a command and control, just fire something out and then Parliament will pass it. Well, those days were disappearing anyway. They're completely gone now. So we need to think a lot more cleverly about how we do the politics of taxation. On the single fiscal yeah. event, I mean, the 
moving to genuinely moving to a single fiscal event with a lot more consultation would clearly be a good way to move. And the March budget did have quite a lot of consultation on measures. Um, but I can't help be a little bit cynical that actually back in 97, the pre-budget report that was then introduced was meant to be a consultation on the budget. It wasn't meant to be a full fiscal event. The autumn statement in 2010, the first under the coalition government, genuinely wasn't a big fiscal event, and that was supposed to be the plan then, and that never materialized. So I worry that you know we can easily slip back into having two fiscal events a year if that's what the Chancellor decides. The fact, though, that legislating has become a whole lot more difficult actually may act as a useful counter in the other direction. Let's go to Penny. Thank you. Um, Mary Dushevsky, journalist. I've got a very small print question um, for Julian. Um, on your um, table showing that numbers of doctors and nurses had um, risen, um, does that, <laughs> is that the number of people employed on, as it were, a full-term basis each, or is it, um, does it take into account the number of people, especially GPs, who say are working part-time? Yeah. Um, and a um, related question is, you sort of blame the headlines, saying, you know, don't believe the headlines, um, but it, but the headlines reflect the failure of the government to get this message out. How do you think they should get the message out that it's not as the perception is? Yeah. Okay, Julian, yeah. Um, very quickly, yes, all, all the things we're talking about include full, their full-time equivalent, um, so they've got those changes in them. Um, and just on your last point, I'm, I'm not really blaming the headlines. Uh, I'm, I don't think that's the issue. I definitely think the government needs to do a serious job on political communications, but I'm just saying, look, there are alternate ways of coming to issues and you know teachers and nurses will automatically be the front of stories actually if you look at the public services and the real pressures there it takes you in slightly different directions and there's some really good journalistic coverage of that so Gillian you made the point about actually needing to be more sort of transparent and things like that and obviously uh, Rob Choteau we had government being more transparent about its fiscal numbers by creating the Office for Budget Responsibility. So just uh, just on that, actually, how might you get your government's natural instincts on to be that transparent on whether spending them is deliverable? So do you have any sort of ideas in mind about how you could enforce transparency, perhaps, or create that confidence? I think it would be incredibly easy for the government, actually, to create quite a lot more transparency simply by publishing um, some of the underlying key assumptions that it's making when it makes claims about efficiency changes or switches to that, that would be very straightforward. Um, you might, and actually I think it would be very helpful to the government because it gets you into much more interesting conversations than just what should be the number, of, the amount we spend on a service and what should be the amount of uh, people we employ in that service. Um, I actually think you also probably need to create something like the OBR. Myself and Robert have had long conversations <laughs> about this um, that actually gives a bit of scrutiny to those assumptions and thinks about how they operate. I think, again, like the OBR has proved for the rest of the fiscal forecast, transparency and a scrutineer uh, function has made a huge difference to the credibility of the UK fiscal numbers from where we were in quite a dubious state around 2008, 2009. Uh, it's been an extremely helpful change. Yes. Uh, Dave Penman from the FDA. Uh, a couple of factual questions, then a broader one. First of all, we've talked about things like public sector pay rises as a cost. What is the impact on the economy? Is it a good way of spending money? Because if you give higher pay rises to public servants, they will spend that money and it will help stimulate the economy. So, so, so what, is the, what is the net effect? Um, also, you talked about the in terms of the debt levels and the deficit. What's the international comparisons? What did Britain look like against the other kind of G7, G8 or G20 economies? And thirdly, given all that's going on in terms of the parliamentary majorities and everything else, 
we're really saying that this is not a parliament for big ideas. For all we talk about, mm -hmm. there are big challenges. It is unlikely that this government is going to come up with big ideas. And is it also more likely that the Chancellor is going to hold on to any big measures to wait and see what the impact of Brexit is to give himself some wiggle room around dealing with any kind of cliff edge or financial uncertainty. So we're likely to see no big decisions for at least 18, 24 months. Okay, so Carl, do you want to take this first two and I'll get yeah. both of you to comment on Dave's, you know, is this going to be a sort of micro parliament yeah. with nothing right. you know, big happening? Carl? In the near term, it's pretty clear that if you increase public sector pay, you will get some of that back in tax revenues. But I think in the longer term, that's not really the right way to think about it. The economy would adjust. Those people working who, you, if you give a pay if you give a pay rise in the public sector, well, maybe you're getting from they would have worked in the private sector, and you're just getting the tax revenue in a different way. I think the justification has be, has to be about not really what's good for the economy in a kind of the way we measure GDP, but what do we want in society? What, what what quality and quantity of public services do we want to enjoy, and what's the most efficient way of getting those services? And to do that, we'll need some high quality people delivering those public services and they come with a price, um, and we'll need to pay that price. And as I said, economically at least, the pay squeeze that public sector workers have faced since 2010 won't have been pleasant for public sector workers, but actually it's only restoring the average of their hourly wage back to what it was around 2007, 2008. So you can justify it on those economic terms. So public sector workers are paid a bit more per hour than private sector workers to the same extent as they were pre-crisis. Going forwards, if we continue to do the public sector pay squeeze, we can do that if we want to, but if we do, we probably should expect recruitment and retention problems to grow from where they are at the moment and it, to have effects on the quality of public services that we get to have. Um, so there's a negative effect. Of course, we will benefit in the sense that the taxpayer, the, the public finances may be stronger, but public services won't be as good. And it's trading off those risks. The big risk with keeping the policy is you're taking a risk for the quality of public services. If you cancel the policy, you've got, you've got nine billion pounds a year, essentially, um, that you'd need to find at least at some point, um, either from higher borrowing or from somewhere else. In terms of international comparisons on debt and deficit, if you look at a broad set of countries, the UK's debt and deficit are both pretty high by international standards. Now, it's worth noting that the UK is a large economy, and large economies tend to have pretty high deficits and debt as a share of their economy, perhaps because they can. Um, but even once you compare amongst the G7, the UK is kind of, you know, a, is towards the top, if you like. The, it's a high level of borrowing and debt now, um, in particular because it had a, you know, while all countries saw problems through the financial crisis, amongst the G7 we saw a bigger problem emerge, perhaps not surprisingly because we have a relatively large financial sector. Do you want to pick up the uh, final points, uh, Julian, maybe on, you know, is, are we going to see no big decisions? Basically, there is a big decision, which is Brexit. That's really like monster Pac-Man decision chewing up bandwidth for anything else, but is there going to be nothing else? Yeah, I think it's actually quite striking how few big ideas there are out there for how we change our public services. Uh, everything has become very, very tactical from certainly 10, 15 years ago when people used to push out, privatise, contestability, all these sort of things we were doing. Um, is quite quite interesting, not necessarily always successful uh, reform strategies. Actually, my argument would be, look, the lack of big ideas, you're not going to pass anything big or major at the moment if you require primary legislation. A lot of the stuff that suggests how you drive improvement are actually quite small ideas. Um, they're actually about engaging the workforce. They're working in very different ways. They don't involve big groups of people in Whitehall sitting thinking about big ideas and trying to cascade those through Parliament onto people working in public services. And that actually applies for Whitehall and how it works itself. Um, you could make some quite big changes 
quite easily, I think, without those, in, in, in inverted commas, big ideas. And I think one of the things I'd just add on that, um, on public sector pay, um, I mean, one of the things we found that general blanket policy of hold pay down uh, is coming under quite a bit of pressure. Um, we know there are lots of very sensible discussions that could be had about how you move that, not in a sort of moving back to a blanket public sector rises, but actually thinking about, well, where are the real pressures and how do we help our services work better and the people working in those services feel better about working in them. Okay, let's come down to this quadrant of the room. So if we could come here. She said just being efficient in microphones. <coughs> Jim Hancock, yes. freelance journalist. Um, we haven't mentioned productivity this morning. And I wonder <coughs> what you feel about its contribution to, uh, why haven't we mentioned it? I mean, have we sort of given up on it? Because for years and years, we've known the need to increase skills in our, in our, in our uh, economy, uh, improving particularly middle management, improving the education system that drives skills and so on. And maybe it even goes to an issue of, of national morale. Uh, how might this uh, enter into the discussion? And this is obviously a massive Brexit issue as well, because... Uh, People have been complaining that business's first uh, default of choice is to recruit skills abroad rather than actually rely on bringing through British skills and whatever. So as we see those migration numbers go down, be interesting. So, okay, solve the productivity puzzle in, yeah, got 25 minutes, but don't take it all. So, Carl. I mean, actually, productivity is underpinning a lot of what we're talking about here. My first slide on GDP per head being atrocious over the period since 2008. Um, is in large part about productivity growth being really, really poor. Actually, the discussion about public sector pay, how have we got away with doing a public sector pay squeeze since 2010? Well, it's because private sector workers haven't been enjoying big pay rises because their productivity hasn't been growing. If private sector productivity had been growing faster, tax revenues would have come in higher, the public sector pay policy would have been much harder to, to implement. Um, so it is implicit in a lot of what's going on here. Um, but of course, we also don't have that magic wand that we can wave about how to be more productive, what policy levers could you pull? Um, I can think of one very, very big policy decision we've made in the last year which won't be productivity enhancing in the longer term, but we're not likely to reverse that decision. Oh, right, okay. Which is, but anyway, it's not the last year. Can I, can I just, and yeah. just on that, um, got to remember also the public sector workforce makes up about going on for 20% of the UK economy. So everything we're talking about, use the word efficiency, but inside efficiency, there is a productivity uh, measure. And actually, the public sector workforce's driving productivity increase is just as important economically as private sector um, productivity. Okay, does that answer you? Yep. Um, Bill Wells, I uh, was in the civil service. Um, I was wondering whether there's an alternative, not a complete alternative, which is around reform rather than um, anything else. And reform in things that we've got in common rather than dividers. And it seems to me there's sort of three that I would pick out then. Um, one would be NICS, um, where the sort of Taylor reform is about getting tax breaks for, rid of tax breaks for um, self-employed. But if you raised the starting point for NICS as well, you'd have a better tax system, probably more tax, and achieve redistributive stuff. The second is the mess that is tax credits and universal credit and whatever. Um, just to sort of, and it's the delivery and the policy that's the problem. 
for example, although you know everybody believes that tax credits are being cut, the average tax credit award has gone up by 65% between 2010-11 and 2015-16. It's going to the wrong people and they're getting it for too long. And the last one um, is put some gist on um, objectives. So for example, for non-EU people, um, the people who come in, the new migrants, are supposed to not put any cost mm. on the public finances for four years. But there's no policies to achieve that. So a social insurance system for new migrants, which may include um, the um, EU people um, who are non-settled, um, might achieve more money and less spending. So Carl, where do you think we could go on, uh, take up Bill's points, where do you think we could go on welfare reform? Well, taking them in turn, I mean, employee national insurance, I mean, it's clearly a case for increasing the point at which you start to pay in national insurance for employees. It would be uh, more progressive than the government's policy of increasing the point at which you start to pay income tax, um, given that the government's justification has been to support low-wage individuals, it would be better targeted because pensioners benefit from the increase in the personal allowance. They would not um, benefit from the increase in the employee national insurance rate. So there's reasons why you might think that's a better policy to do, um, but it would cost money. I don't think you could take people out of national insurance and seriously expect that you'd be raising more money um, on average. Um, in terms of welfare reform, I think it's very striking that actually the big challenge we face now is not really about people on job seekers allowance. Um, the challenge for the government really is about the number of people out of work for reasons of incapacity. Um, getting those people um, into work is a, it seems to be a more significant challenge. And for those people in low paid work, getting those people to progress and earn more um, would be another way of reducing um, the tax credit bill as well as making those households better off. So they seem to be the, the main challenges in terms of welfare reform. Um, in terms of new migrants and a social insurance policy, we could move to a system where um, the tax that people pay ref is reflected in the benefits that they receive, but that would be a, and it would have potentially advantages in terms of strengthening incentives if people think if people can see that they're working paying tax, but actually they benefit from some of that tax that they pay directly with some additional insurance that they're getting. Um, and it may well have benefits in terms of ensuring that the people here who are paying in are the people that benefit. But that's a long, long way from the system we have at the moment where um, the amount of tax that you pay has almost no um, reflection in the amount of benefit that you'll accrue. Um, so for example, you need to be here for 35 years to get a full state pension. Um, you really don't need to, you know, it's, n it's not hard to do. I think introducing that probably in the short run was probably strained things a bit too much. I mean, they're supposed to be pursuing people, aren't they, for, for payment uh, when they treat foreign patients. Uh, anyway, Julian, have you got any views on what... I, I mean, I think, I, I, think, I think there are lots of interesting ideas in that. I do think yeah. that Jill's point about, you know, how much do we have to change over the next few years, a full move to a proper social insurance systems are quite difficult. And we've been chasing people in hospitals to get them mm -hmm. to pay. Um, 
for the last 10, 15 years, I was involved in it about 10 mm. years ago. I thought we'd solved it then, but obviously not, because we're still uh, pursuing it. Okay. Uh, I'm Alan Bailey, former Treasury, and um, I, I agree very strongly with the need you were emphasizing uh, uh, for strategic thinking and transparency. But um, Julian McRae at the end suggested there's a matter for cabinet. It's not just that something that the Treasury can, can uh, create out of the blue and, and offer to all content. Um, and the, it seems to me extremely unlikely that in our present political situation we can expect much strategic thinking from the present cabinet for the next couple of years. So I do think there is a huge dilemma which institutes like yours and academic uh, and of course the opposition need to think about for two, three, four, five years when, when things become more possible and clearer perhaps. But the dilemma is very stark and, and it's hinted at, uh, in your uh, presentations, namely that people are pretty fed up with austerity and um, the decline in the quality of public services. Uh, and um, the striking thing about Carl Emerson's figures was that the changes in the tax side, like cutting corporation tax, it gives you a couple of billion, but it's a different order of magnitude from the overall bill for what people seem to be thinking of as an end to austerity, namely um, restored public services to a, 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 a decent quality and, and um, pay in line with the private sector or at least preventing, I mean, dealing with retention and, and recruiting, recruiting and producing. A, a, but my point, I think, in this stark dilemma is that the answer on, is essentially on the tax side. Can we find a fairer way of raising tax which would be acceptable? And this is a political problem of obvious magnitude. Where is there a fairer solution? The fact is that wealth has, uh, in, in assets uh, for property owners, has gone up uh, far quicker than incomes. It's, it, it is difficult to tax high incomes because people are mobile. It's not as easy as Carl uh, Emerson was suggested just to put a bit more on tax and solve the problem. Um, but wouldn't a wealth tax, uh, improved council tax, be worth examining in terms of what's happening in other countries to find a, a better source of uh, equitable taxation to, to meet the public service requirements that everybody perceives? So it's quite interesting. In our Better Budgets report that Julian referred to earlier that we did jointly with CIT and the IFS, we talked about the need for a better quality of public debate on tax options. And it's a brief moment when the government always looks like it might be having a uh, public debate about how you might uh, finance social care. Uh, that lasted three days, I think, during the election uh, until it was reversed. But uh, what do you think? I mean, if you know, government's basically completely Brexitified, making micro-decisions, best we can hope for is some you know, little sort of movements on efficiency. You know, what about sort of civil society, places like IFS or whatever, actually promoting these sorts of conversations that Alan's talking about, about what are the really big tax options going forward? You were quite notable during the election of saying that actually Labour's sums didn't really add up, you know, you couldn't finance as much as they wanted of just taxing people who were really, really well off. Um, whatever. You know, what can we, the rest of us, do actually to open up some options 
if not for 2018 to 2020, for 2020 and beyond? Yeah. Carl? So I guess that when we're taking Labour's tax plans from their manifesto, I think that one of the key things we were trying to communicate to people was actually you know, a very, very large slice of the revenue they were after was coming from companies. Um, and there seems to be a kind of perception that, well, that's okay, because companies will pay that. Um, but at the end of the day, any tax revenue you collect has got to come from an individual somewhere. Um, the thing about corporation tax is it might just be a bit harder to work out who it is that's a bit poorer. Now, so we know that corporation tax has to be either hitting shareholders or workers or consumers of goods, and it's very difficult to work out exactly what it is. Um, but I think you know, what we can be very confident about is that while Labour was claiming that 95% of people wouldn't have to pay any more tax under their policies, um, it is implausible that their corporation tax rises would only hit 5% of the population. Um, so, for example, if you have a private pension, it will be invested in part in UK companies. Um, you will be buying goods that are made by UK companies and you'll be working for a UK company. So how you would escape um, corporation tax, wherever its incidence is, um, just doesn't seem plausible. So um, wealth how do we get a wealth tax back on when, the agenda? I mean, we, we, know that our, we? we know that our tax system um, is far, far from ideal. We could have a tax system that did as much redistribution as the mm -hmm. one we have without creating as many distortions. Mm -hmm. um, IFS has published the Murley's Review, which sets out kind of where we think we should be headed in terms of the tax system. And part of the problem is indeed the taxation of property. Um, when we tax people on their incomes, we work out your income in the current mm. year and tax you on the basis mm. of that. When you're occupying a property in England, we tax you on the basis of what that property mm. was worth in 1991, um, and we put it into bands which are n not progressive. So if your property is worth two million pounds in London, you will pay the same, in 1991 terms, you'll pay the same council tax as if your property was worth um, half a million pounds in 1991. Whereas you know, a neutral mm. tax would say, well, if your property's worth four times as much, you ought to pay four times as much tax um, as a starting point. So you know, one reform that would be obvious would be to, to have frequent, regular review revaluations re of council tax and levy the tax as close to proportional of the, va the value of that home as you could. Um, and it's notable that that would be a tax that would be very hard for the wealthy to avoid um, because we know where they live, we know who owns a property. Um, it's very different to their income or their wealth, which may well be very, very mobile. It's quite scary, the IFS saying they know where you live. But I mean, the, you know, the reason, the reason that we have uh, the council tax in that form and the reason why every... Uh, UK governors ducked revaluations as they know that's a sort of you know shortcut to political extinction. That was the Conservatives in Scotland with the poll tax after the Scottish rating revaluation. So how do we how do we create the conditions for politicians to be brave on these things? Yeah, I, I think yeah, I always find the politicians being brave is like uh, one of those things that's never that's not really what we, we should be talking about. Actually, if, <laughs> just because kind of it's a strange human perception. Um, the um, the thing about a lot of the debates, I mean, just go back to, to Alan's point. Um, actually, I wasn't calling for strategic thinking across the piece from the cabinet. I simply want them to set out a political strategy on uh, what they're doing about public finances. Uh, I do think that this is not going to be an area where this government is going to be able to spend large amounts of time thinking grand thoughts. Um, what I do think, though, if you look back at some of the really big changes that have happened in UK public policy, so if you think about devolution, if you think about the introduction of minimum wage, if you think about um, smoking ban, a lot of activity that went on around creating the political environment for that was really civic society actors um, getting together and working through a lot of the issues. It wasn't really Whitehall, Westminster, mm. big strategy thinking. 
Uh, and I think there's a huge space for that. If you take one example, um, the future and how we're going to fund the future of the NHS, mm -hmm. given the demographic pressures that the OBR is setting out, that's a debate the UK public is going to have to have. Um, it's a very real one. Um, how do you actually link up what you get on the spending side and the services about quality of your life with the funding side? I think it's how you've got to do these debates. I think if you try and do a how do we raise tax debate on its own, uh, you're in real, real trouble because you haven't just haven't got any offer inside that debate for anyone to think, well, this is a good conversation to engage with. Okay, yes. A couple of related questions. Uh, Dennis Van Mecklen, Police Federation, England and Wales. Uh, quite agree with your point about data, how you look at it, compare with headlines and all else. But looking at numbers on their own doesn't say everything, does it? It's demand on the pressure on the, on the particular service. And uh, that's the pay review bodies that have come out and said that very strongly, that going forward it's not sustainable. Very strong message for a pay review body. <laughs> very, very strong. Coded, probably. In some um, I'm just wondering also, in related to that, uh, the firefighters' negotiations that are going on, they look as they're going to break the pay policy. Uh, there might be some problems, I believe, with second stage, because it might depend on government finance to assist that. Um, but can you have a public sector pay policy that doesn't apply to all public sector workers? <laughs> Isn't that a bit of a, an anomaly? And finally, can I just ask, uh, do you think maybe the autumn statement is going to be a chance for the government to change direction because they didn't want to do anything too soon. They'd be like, they're being pressured into making a policy change. Uh, maybe they will look at the next pay round, 18, 19. What Clean, are your do you want to pick up that one? Mm, yeah. Um, very quickly, I mean, I think ex exactly right about the balance of demand, um, pressure on the system, quality, what's happening to quality. Really important that you look at these things in the round. Um, we did something about policing. Um, recently just commenting on some of the election pieces where in what you know what were the questions that were being asked and what information do we have so for example if you're thinking about our anti-terror um, stuff what do we know about how effective it is to spend money through the security services or through the police in terms of the amount of operations you can get and, and that that's eminently discoverable information um, that should be part of the public debate where do we spend that money similarly neighborhood policing and its deterrent effect in the community sort of stuff how does spending through policing uh, how does that match spending through other routes uh, where do we get the value those are the types of things and the information that need to be in the public uh, domain otherwise we just end up with a increased pay and have more people um, which is you know can be in some sense a good thing. You can see the politics around that plays really easily, but it may not be the best way to help every pound improve people's lives. So I think there's a real big question about how the data plays and how we do that. I very much hope the Chancellor's going to look at some of these things because it's very clear that the pressures are very real. Um, you know, there will always be people calling for increases and in more pay, but actually if you look at the data underneath, there's real pressures on services which do have to be addressed and pay will be part of that. In so terms of do, you, do yeah. you have to have a uniform public sector yeah. pay policy, of course the coalition government didn't have one, it had more generous pay settlements for lower paid workers, mm. but in terms of the data, what evidence there is suggests actually <laughs> public sector workers are more likely to be getting a better deal in the public sector relative to the private sector, and the group who are more likely to be underpaid, if you like, relative to private sector counterparts are highly paid public sector workers. So that was actually going contrary to the data. Um, the other thing we could look at... The other thing um, we could look at is the variation across the country. 
um, and look at how public sector pay compares to private sector pay in different parts of the country and you see there that public sector workers are paid a lot, lot more relative to private sector workers in some parts of the country, North Wales, Northern Ireland, are not paid um, very much more in places like London and the South East. So you could move to a policy where you relax public sector pay in some parts of the country, perhaps where the recruitment and retention pressures are bigger, perhaps where there's more justification for spending more. Mm. I think that's probably very brave as well. But yes, Paul, uh, Yeah, I. tell us who you are. <laughs> Paul Johnson, the IFS. Um, following on really, Julian, from your final point, which is that we need a spending review. Um, and we need to do that in a rational and uh, reasonably open way. Um, and I completely agree with that. I mean, it's um, whatever you think of appropriate public pay policy and so on, what we've seen over the last couple of weeks has been fairly absurd. Um, but do you, so, so, so it's really a question about how we get here to there. So we don't have ever so long now until an autumn budget, and we haven't had a spending review announced, um, I don't think. Um, and uh, the, the danger, of course, with the spending review is it opens things up, and at the moment all ministers seem to be able to say whatever they want, so does this kind of add risk in the short run? But can you design it in a way which would mitigate that sort of political risk in the short run and end up closing down some of these issues and getting the cabinet agreement that you described, which is clearly, just from a good governance point of view, what we need, uh, but if I was the Chancellor sitting there, I'd be wondering how on earth I'd do this, mm -hmm. particularly with some of my slightly difficult colleagues sitting around the table. Okay, Julie, if you ask that, um, we're going to have a last round of questions. So if you want to ask a question, please put your hand up, and then we'll just try and take everybody a thing while Julian answers that. So. Okay, I, mean, I was hoping, Paul, you were going to ask a question to Carl. I was saying, let's see, a little intro. <laughs> oh, that's, 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 that's the equivalent of blue-on-blue yeah. fighting, um, like in look, referendum. We already, we, we've emphasised in this, it, we, we're sort of talking about a mini-spending review. We don't, want, don't think you have to open up every area and do it. It's the huge jamboree of data that we usually have uh, accompanying a spending review. But the politics are actually always the key in spending reviews. Uh, I've suggested one or two ways other countries have handled the politics of their cabinet, um, actually getting a set of ministers together to actually help formulate this and not leave all the heavy listing to a chancellor versus his colleagues because I think actually at the moment that would be incredibly difficult not least because the politics of Brexit is playing across um, there is you know in a sense you know the, the chancellor doesn't need to do this he can just say look we're sticking with the current spending plans and we're going to do it it's what we describe here as the toughing it out policy uh, if you look how that was going in the run into the election we had to revisit the spending on prisons in an emergency measure. We then had to revisit social care as an emergency measure. That real sense of balancing from crisis to crisis was really building. Uh, the election result hasn't done anything to that. Uh, the government can choose to try to tough this out, but it will just end up bouncing from crisis to crisis as the pressures come through. So, you know, I think thinking about the politics, absolutely, you've got to construct something that is a little more sophisticated than we've done trying to keep it tight, the question you ask cabinet ministers is really important. But before all that, you've got to actually get a cabinet agreement to do they agree where they're going on public finance strategy, what's important to them. If you don't have that, if we don't have a cabinet that has a collective you can look back to, uh, then we're in for a treat of headlines over the next few, uh, few months as we run up to a highly contested uh, budget. Well, we are asking for more transparency, so seeing the debates in public is quite interesting. <laughs> so yes, final two questions, yes. Uh, Guy Ware, London Councils. Is this working? Yeah. Um, thank you. Um, Julian talked about improving accountability and um, transparency about assumptions in government decision making. One of the reasons why local government has been cut so much more than everything else is because all of those decisions are at one remove 
from the cabinet and the NEO have been very critical of government's understanding of the implications of what it's done. So do you think there would be benefit? Would we get better tax and spending decisions if a greater proportion of those decisions were aligned and taken locally? Julia, do you, do you both want to pick that up and then we'll go to the final question? Yeah? I, I think it's, it, the, the devolution decentralization agenda in the UK is vital. There's certain decisions that you need to make which have to be at a local level. Actually, I'm arguing for something that's going even further than that. I think if you want to improve the efficiency in a hospital, you actually need to look inside what's happening inside ward structures and to get the staff working on those to take responsibility for how they improve um, some of that. Um, I do think the local government issue is a huge one. Do we really understand the risks that are being run by central decision making? that's playing out on the ground. And it's come back in social care already uh, playing out. There's a lot of other things. We're going to extend our performance track to cover some more council services uh, in the autumn, um, where I think there are real pressures potentially building, some of which have led to efficiency in the short run, but are they long-term viable strategies? I'm not sure. And it will be really interesting to see whether the sort of new devolution to Greater Manchester and places like that actually makes a difference of being able to you know, look across the piece, I suppose. Uh, it will do, and it makes a difference for certain policies like some of your labour market policies and transport. It's fundamentally what a move we needed to make in the UK. And whether the combined effect of that many mayors negotiating with central <laughs> government, particularly when they come from different political parties, may actually change the entire dynamic of some of our policy debates. I certainly hope so. Okay, yeah, final question. Hi, Nick Jones, PwC. Um, Julian, in particular, how do we get the smarter public engagement, whether it's on tax or spend, to have the conversation that I think both you and Carl have been talking about? Yeah. Look, I think there are lots of things that different countries do, and indeed have been done in the UK. I know PwC did quite a lot of really fascinating work about using deliberative fora like citizens' juries, where you take a group of people representative of the public and you ask them to come to a collective decision on actually quite a tricky issue. Now, that doesn't necessarily give you the answer to what should be done. We're not saying replace Parliament with a set of uh, you know, 12 people drawn randomly from the public and we sort out all public policy problems. But it does give you real insight as to what arguments work or don't work when you're approaching a policy problem. And actually, that drove quite a lot of the austerity politics that George Osborne created. It wasn't just a George Osborne thought this up. It's about can you convince people that something is necessary to do? Can you convince them that you've dealt with some of the waste of the political issues that get in the way? Can you convince them that actually if they're going to take some pain, someone across the other side from them is going to take some pain? I always remember a conversation at one of these where you know, I think it was the firefighter was sort of grudgingly saying, okay, I'll accept this uh, cut to my pension because it's really important. And we walked out of the room and said, well, the only reason I said that was the police officer's got to take the pain as well because they're grossly overpaid. And I'm sure if I'd be walked out of the room with a police officer, I'd have got the same <laughs> conversation in reverse. So constructing these, there's a lot of stuff out there on it and a lot of good work in civic society as much as from government on this. Um, we just have to get smarter about using it. And the fact that we can't do our command and control budgets because the politics doesn't allow us to, probably helps us, gives us an imperative to explore these things. Okay, so we're going to close there. Any final comments, Carl, Julian, any last thought you want people to go away with? Uh, no, I don't think no. so. No, <laughs> okay. <laughs> I have silence. Anyway, excellent. So I think that's a very interesting, uh, interesting session of some sort of uh, very difficult uh, year ahead. So watch to see what happens in the uh, autumn statement, hopefully the only fiscal event that we will see for a year. Thank you all very much for coming. Thank you, Julian and Carl, for your presentations and for answering all those questions. Thank you very much. Thank you.